Well, as we've been working through uh, this gospel, one of the uh, obvious themes has been a theme of, uh, of light and darkness. Uh, it's, it's just, uh, it's everywhere in this book. In just the first 12 chapters, light has been used 20 times in reference to Jesus and his ministry. Uh, he is introduced in chapter 1, verse 4, as the light of life. In chapter 8, he calls himself the light of this world. And just at the beginning of, of this chapter, of, of chapter 11 here, verse 10, uh, he calls the disciples to not walk in the darkness of this world, but walk in, in his light. And one of the effects that we've seen through this book of, of Jesus as, as light, as the light, is exposure. In John chapter 3, it, it says this, and this is the judgment, the light, that is Jesus, has come into the world, and people have loved the darkness rather than the light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. Jesus, in, in the truth that he is, is this exposing light, kind of exposes us and for, for who we are in, in the good and, and the bad. Uh, I was thinking of the woman at the well, right? Jesus is having a conversation with her, and uh, in the middle of the conversation, he says, why don't you go get your husband? And she says, I don't have a husband. And she, he says, that's right, you have no husband. Uh, you've had five husbands, and the man you're with now is not your husband. And she says, oh, sir, I perceive you are a prophet. <laughs> uh, she is exposed. He knows, right? Nicodemus, when he's speaking with Nicodemus and He's trying to explain about being born again and how the Spirit works. And Nicodemus says, I, I don't understand how these things could be. And, and Jesus says, you're a teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? He exposes his, his true ignorance, even though he seems to be this great teacher. He exposes the truth. And there's these times when he does these miraculous kind of exposing events that really kind of shine who he is and expose those around him, the feeding of the 5,000, for example, right? Incredible miracle, demonstrating him as the same God of the Old Testament, the creator and sustainer of life. And he calls the people at the end of it to fully partake of him. And many of them say, this is a hard teaching. They just want their bellies filled with the bread and they walk away. They're exposed for who they really are. Now, last week, I think we saw the ultimate example of this kind of exposure, this kind of exposing event. When Jesus commanded Lazarus out of the grave, his divine light, in a sense, was kind of on full blast. And as a consequence, all kinds of things were exposed about the hearts and responses of those around him. That's what our passage is really about today. Last week we saw, we kind of stood in the shining light of Jesus' majesty as he brought life from the grave and Lazarus, and this week we look at what is exposed in the light of that event all around him. 
And the first thing that we see exposed very clearly is the, the heart or, or the nature of unbelief and rejection. It's exposed in Jesus' light, the very nature of rejection. Look at verse uh, 45 with me, and let's read a bit of the text. Put my glasses on. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him when they saw this you know, miracle of, of, of Lazarus. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was a high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Let's skip down to verse 53. From that day on, they made plans to put him to death. It's stunning. Jesus raises a man from the dead, restores life, and their response is to begin to plan his execution. Some people see it, and, and, and they believe. They decide to trust in him with their lives and follow him as their divine savior, but others immediately want to shut him down and destroy him. They want to get rid of him altogether. Why this harsh rejection? What's it about? Well, the first thing to note is that this is not about the facts. Their rejection of Jesus has nothing to do with the facts. I've had many people say to me, uh, as I've uh, shared about Jesus with them or shared about the resurrection, well, I would like to believe that, Carrie, but I'm, I'm, I'm a person of facts. I'm, I'm more of a scientific thinker. And the fact is, you know, people don't rise from the dead. Those kinds of things aren't possible. So I, I, just, I just can't believe. There was just some proof then I would probably believe. But that's not, that's not really true, is it? As, as we see here. Uh, this, this council of Jewish leaders have witnessed the facts of Jesus' divine power repeatedly. They've personally witnessed him change water into wine, heal the official's son as he lay near death, Restore a, a crippled man who'd been crippled for 38 years. Feed 5,000 people from a bunch of crumbs. Walk on water. All of which are miracles uh, and, and divine feats. And in a sense, just a testimony to his divinity. But they also are the very signatures of their promised Messiah. Fulfillments of Old Testament prophecy. About, about what their Messiah will do and who he is. They've seen it right before their eyes. And now Jesus has just raised a man to life right in front of their eyes. And this was, this was no resuscitation, right? He hadn't, Lazarus wasn't dead about two minutes, just flatlined, and Jesus went in there and 
you know, pounded on his chest and saved him. That's not what happened. No, he'd been dead four days in the grave, so much so that he was rotting and stinking. And Jesus says, come out of that tomb. And he did. He commanded life with his words. And the conclusion is obvious. And the thing is, the Jewish leaders have acknowledged Jesus' divine reality, who he is, his divine power. Nicodemus said, you know, we know that you're from God. You couldn't perform these miracles if you weren't. He said that. And they say here in verse 47, this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everybody will believe in him. See, they know. Their rejection is not about the facts. It's not for lack of evidence. It's not for lack of clarity. And my friends, this is the truth about all rejection of God. From the beginning, Adam and Eve, I think they kind of knew who God was. They knew the truth. But they rejected him. Romans uh, tells us this very clearly. Romans 1.18 says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their right unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. They are without excuse. Now, if you're an unbeliever this morning, you may be saying, but Carrie, the facts aren't clear to me. I, I haven't personally seen any proof. And that's, and that's probably true. Now, I would, I would argue that if you were willing to take a look at uh, the facts, there's all kinds of evidence to consider. But the point is, that is not your issue. That's not the issue. That is not what's really holding you back. It's not that you need more evidence. That's not the problem here, is it? I think what this text is showing us about these guys, and really all people, is that you could have Jesus stand right in front of you and raise the dead, and there is a good chance your rejection and unbelief would still be firmly in place, just as it was for them, because that's not what it's about. So what's it about? Well, I think we get a clue. In verse 47, we'll just read that again. We read it, but let's look at it again. So if the chief priests, so the chief priests and the Pharisees, uh, so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, "What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everybody will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation." There it is. The rejection of Jesus is not about the facts, it's about the consequences. Rejection of Jesus is not about the facts of who he is, but about the consequence 
of who he is for their lives. You see, the Jewish leaders realize that if many of the people begin to follow Jesus, it might cause a disturbance in society, maybe even a zealous uprising against Rome, and that would cause a problem for them as the leaders of their society. They could lose their place, their nation. That, the, the place would be their, their temple, uh, the, the religious authority. And the, and the nation is about their governing status. They might lose all of that if they, if they let this rogue savior leader of the people guy rile up the masses so he must die. Now Caiaphas... We didn't read that part. We read it earlier, but he tries to persuade them that not to panic because it's actually good, in a sense, if they hand over Jesus to die because that will placate the Romans. He'll be kind of a, a sacrifice in the place of all the, the people. Instead of them coming down to the nation, it'll all just come down on, on Jesus, and they, as the leaders, will be preserved. And John points out, ironically, that he's prophesying exactly what Jesus will do. He will die for the nation. He will die for the people. But the point is here is that they all agree, whether they see it from Caiaphas' perspective or they see it from their own, they all agree that he must die. And that becomes their plan from that time on. It says that they plan to put him to death. And if you read on, they're looking to arrest him so that they can do that. Jesus must die. And you see, the consequences, consequences of accepting Jesus... In, in all his true authority and power, they're just too great. It means losing their perceived, their perceived authority and power. It means they're not really in charge of anything if they accept him. It means losing a certain status and respect before the world. It means humbling themselves before God before his true king. And they, they won't have it. The facts don't matter. My friends, that's what their unbelief is really about. Preserving their sense of self-governance and autonomy and control. And that's what it's always been about for everybody. That's what it's about for people today. Unbelief, at its core, is motivated by not wanting to give up our in-chargeness. Adam and Eve, they wanted to be in God's position in charge. Rejection and unbelief is not about facts and intellect. It's about emotion and will. And thus it manifests itself in desperately clinging to those things that, 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 that give us that sense of control, that give us that sense of power. For them, it was the place in the nation for these religious leaders. But what is it for people today? If someone is rejecting Jesus, what is it they're clinging to that gives them that sense of control, that sense of power, that sense of status? Maybe it's their job, right? A career, a position at work. It gives them a certain status amongst their peers that, that comes with a title. 
Is that what's at the center of, of your life that might be behind your rejection of Jesus if you're rejecting him this morning? Because you sense that, that you might have to actually give that up as that center of your, of your trust and to, to, to turn to Jesus. Maybe it's the power of personality. Maybe you have a personality that commands attention and persuades people with wit and charm. It brings you a certain status, a circle of popularity. It always seems to get you what you want. So functionally, it's your place of power and control. And you sense that you'll have to displace that to come to Jesus. Maybe it's family. You have this strong family base where you find your security. And you know that they would, they would mock any of this Jesus stuff. I remember a lot of my friends when I lived in Australia, I was part of a Greek community, and they had really strong families. And to turn from Jesus was to threaten that. To turn to Jesus was to threaten that. Or perhaps you're clinging to the most common derived power and control source known to man, and that is money. We see this one perfectly illustrated later on in this text with, uh, with another rejecter, sort of the ultimate rejecter of Jesus, Judas. In, in chapter 12, around verse 5, we see him upset about this expensive perfume being spilt out on Jesus' feet. He says the, the money could have been used to, for the relief of the poor. And it seems very pious, him, him pointing this out. But then we read in verse 6, he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. You see, in the end, he, he, he sells out Jesus for a few pieces of silver. He, has put, he, he was put, put in control of the money bags, the treasury in a sense, and it ended up controlling him. He could not give it up. And he rejected the giver of life for a little financial security, so he thought. And believe me, he knew the facts about Jesus. He knew what he, who he was and what he could do. And the scary thing is, he looked like a dedicated follower of Jesus, didn't he? You can be sitting here in church this morning looking very Christian. And the truth is, no matter what you say to yourself and to others... You are clinging to something you feel gives you control and authority, and you're rejecting Jesus. You're not believing, and you, you will be exposed. You are exposed. Jesus sees. He knew exactly who Judas was. I remember during uh, Hurricane Katrina, there was this clip you kept seeing on the news of, as the floodwaters came in, you know, you were seeing people on, on roofs and things. And one clip they kept showing was this guy clinging to a, a bit of a tree branch that was sticking out of the, of the floodwaters. It's swaying in the waters. He's clinging on, and there's a helicopter coming over, dropping a rope to him. And he has to reach out to that rope, but he can't let go of that tree, that little twig that's not going to make it. But he has to reach out. 
if he wants to actually be saved. And you're kind of cheering for him, hoping he will. That's the nature of unbelief. It's not about the facts. It's about fear of letting go of that little branch that is your security and control. But actually to let it go is the best move you could ever make because Jesus is the real deal. He can bring life from the grave. He does. So if you're not a believer in Jesus, you need to examine yourself and your real motives for rejecting him, for actually really not considering the facts, even if you consider yourself religious or maybe even Christian. Look at your heart. What are you clinging to? Now, unbelief and rejection is not the only thing that's exposed in the light of what Jesus has done with Lazarus. We see here in in, in that light also uh, a beautiful picture exposed of what it is to receive Jesus, to actually come to him. So we see kind of the heart of rejection exposed, but we also see the heart of the heart of worship, the heart of receiving Jesus. You see, sandwiched between these two pictures of rejection, the, that of the of the religious leaders and that of Judas, uh, we see this uh, this wonderful other picture. Jesus is is invited to dine with Martha and Lazarus and Mary. And according to some of the other Gospels, there's some other folks there, uh, including Simon the leper. So picture that, that meal that's going on. I can't help but think of what the conversation would have been like at that table. I mean, Lazarus talking, I mean, first of all, Simon the leper talking about, you know, his healing and what that was like. But then Lazarus, you know, a lot of people have near-death experiences. He had death the death experience, right? And the resurrection experience. What do you think he had to say? I I wonder if he was a bit disappointed to be back, to be like, really? I wish you guys had had a little more faith because now look, I'm back. And, uh, but, but we don't, you know, John doesn't focus in on that. As exciting as that would be, he focuses in here on, uh, Mary, And we are told that in the middle of this meal, she gets up and does the most extraordinary thing. Look at verse 12, uh, chapter 12, verse 3. Mary therefore took a pound of nard of expensive ointment, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now, I have to say, this is not normal. This is not some strange Middle Eastern custom. Yes, they did practice foot washing, but it was done by the lowliest of of servants, and you you didn't use your expensive perfume. She she made this up. This is a one-off original act of adoration and devotion and love. And look how it stands in complete and almost parallel contrast to the rejection on the other side of this scene. You see, 
In the light of Jesus' clear authority and life-giving power, the Jewish leaders were clinging desperately to their place and their nation, to their status and high position. But where do we find Mary? About as low as you can possibly get. Prostrate before Jesus, taking her hair, the very sign of her dignity as a woman in that culture, and wiping his feet clean with the most expensive of perfumes. And then we have Judas, right, clinging to every bit of wealth, whether it is his or not. And Mary, she's pouring out her wealth at Jesus' feet. That bottle of perfume was worth about 300 denarii, like a year's wages, somebody's life savings back then. This is what it is to come to Jesus for who he is. This is what it is to receive Jesus, the giver of life, king over all, king over your life, God himself. You must let go of your life Let go of that thing you're clinging to for control and power your own little kingship and humbly bow at Jesus' feet and give him everything. There's no no halfway here from Mary, is there? She gives him all that she is, all that she has. And you won't be sorry if you do this. As Jesus said, after raising Lazarus from the dead in front of them, verse 25 of chapter 11, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. You don't lose anything when you come to Jesus. You gain everything. You gain life forever. People think that sometimes that to come to Jesus, you're kind of wasting your life, right? You, you could have done so many things with your life. Now you've got your priorities out of whack. You could have achieved this or that, but you've followed after Christ instead. You've kind of wasted your life. Well, I want to remind you, remind all of us of what happened in A.D. 70. The place, the temple, and the nation, the thing that they were holding on to for their status, for their power, it's about 40 years later, it all went down. It was completely destroyed. And Judas, how did it go for him, holding on to that money? Well, it ended up on the temple floor as he hung himself. My friends, what you are clinging to in this world, that thing that is at the center of your life, will not last. You will lose it. It will fail you. Like that twig that guy's hanging on to in the middle of that flood. Mary let go of what what she could never really hold on to. And grasped hold of Jesus' feet to take hold of the life that he offered. And there's no waste in that. It's all, it's all gain.
One of the heroes of my uh, teenage years was a martyred missionary named Jim Elliott, who said this, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Now, if you're a believer this morning, you have this life from Jesus. And perhaps you're thinking of, of a friend or a family member who has just been steeped in unbelief, rejecting Jesus. They will not hear you out because they're all about facts and evidence, according to them. Let me show you something really encouraging and really cool in this text, I think. Look at verse, uh, chapter 12, verse 9. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. It's crazy. Not only do they want to kill Jesus, but they decide Lazarus must die as well. Why? Is he preaching? Has he been proclaimed? We read about him just proclaiming. No, I think he's just trying to finish his meal at this time. He's not doing anything. But the problem is, he's alive. His resurrected life is a powerful testimony for Jesus that can't be denied. He doesn't have to say anything. His resurrected life speaks. And my friends, if you are a believer this morning, it is the same for you. The Bible says you have moved from death to life, and it shows You've been released from the bonds of sin and death, those things that rule everybody in this world, and you've been given real eternal life that starts right now. You're already living resurrected life. You live it by faith, and it's an undeniable testimony to Jesus. It may not carry the same shock and awe as having just been physically, you know, brought out of the tomb like Lazarus. But it's real, and it's powerful. Some of you here, if you've been here a while, may remember a woman named Teresa Boltz. She's a member of our congregation that passed away many years ago. Uh, she became a Christian later in life. It was when we, as a church, were meeting in Lewis and Clark High School. And we were doing evangelism in the neighborhood. And uh, she ended up coming to faith. It's an amazing story. But she had uh, some serious medical issues, serious heart issues. And she had been going to the doctor for years. And uh, after she became a Christian, she went to the same doctor. And uh, the doctor said to her, Teresa, what's happened to you? Something, something's changed in you. And she said, I met Jesus. And he said, what are you talking about? <laughs> what do you mean? And she said, I don't know what to say. All I can say, and she walked over and turned off the light in the room and says, my life was like this, and now it's like this. She came into the light, 
She was exposed. Uh, she saw Jesus and she met resurrection life. Um, she had that life and he could see it even in her failing body. So if you're, uh, if you're kind of struggling in your witness and you're praying for your friends, just, just keep living. Keep living your resurrection life, your eternal life. It's a powerful testimony. And if you're not a Christian this morning and you have, I would say, know that you can have eternal life today, the resurrection life that Jesus brought, not by raising Lazarus out of the grave, but by coming out of the grave himself for all of us after he took our sin and judgment on the cross. Let go of that, that twig that you're holding onto for control and security. Realize it's useless and come to the one who's conquered the grave for all of us. He has real life. Let's pray.